shame can track us down. And, and what I want to get into today is we looked at how Jesus broke off the shame in Peter's life. We're going to look at two other things that he did today because the problem is we are like sheep sometimes. And we can go astray even from God's truths. Praise God. The scripture says that fa- the father laid our iniquities on Jesus, Isaiah 53, 6. But we can kind of go astray sometimes and we can start feeding on that shame that he delivered us from. And so I want us to see a three-step process in this chapter, John chapter 21. Now, I reminded you last week that Jesus, excuse me, that that John has been talking about this powerful redemption plan of God, these truths that truly will set us free as captives to sin. John 8, Jesus, remember, said to the Jews that you are slaves to sin. That came as a shock, and they said, we're slaves of no one. And Jesus, he really challenged them. No, your father is the father of lies. It's the devil. And he has you in his grip of lies. And so, yeah, you can't see the truth. This is, this is what is really true. And they got offended by what he said to them. But the, the gospel of John is a very well laid out focused gospel on the redemptive plan of God the father through his son Jesus. Now you remember John 3:16, for God so loved the world, you can help me out here, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. That's right. And so throughout the gospel of John, we see this redemptive plan of God unfold that Jesus is the I am before Abraham was I am. And that this I am stood in the garden of Gethsemane and was and and they he asked this his assailants he said who do you seek and they said Jesus of Nazareth and he said I am and so we we see this god who has come in the flesh and he died on a cross to rescue us pay the price for us and, and so this is John's focus even it's only in the gospel of John by the way that on the cross Jesus confessed and said at the end of the 3 hours of darkness before he died it is finished and so my purpose again right now i want us to see the gospel of John is focused on this redemptive plan of god And so how does he conclude his gospel? Does he tell a really cool story about himself, kind of put himself up there? No, he doesn't. Does he focus on some miracle that Jesus does? Well, kind of, yes. But even so, the focus is how Peter himself plays a part in this. The entire chapter is focused on Peter. Now, of course, Jesus plays the central role. He's the one who does the miracle. He's the one who actually does everything. We'll see. But Peter is the focal point. Why? Because John, I mentioned last week, John is wanting to show us the best example possible of this redemptive plan that he's been talking about for 20 chapters. And it's found in Peter. Now, the reason why it's so powerful is because, as John tells us earlier in his book, I believe chapter 19, that Peter had just denied the Lord three times at Jesus's most crucial hour standing before Ananias, the high priest. And he, he, people ask him, so are, are you one of his disciples? And he, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Three times. I don't know this man. 
And when he, when he said it the third time and the rooster crowed, there was such shame. Church, say that word with me. Shame that came over him that he walked out of the courtyard of the high priest and it says he wept bitterly. What is Peter going to do with this shame that is haunting him? Jesus, newsflash, just came back from the dead. And Peter apparently is supposed to still be one of his disciples, but there is shame. Remember I mentioned this last week? Shame distorts God's picture of you and who you are in Christ. It says, even though I'm in Christ, I am so unworthy. Well, church, let's understand this truth. In and of ourselves, yes. You got that right. We are always unworthy because we are sinners. But in Christ, forgiven, redeemed, there is infinite value, not because of me, but because of Christ. Church, I am in Christ. I am redeemed. Remember, redeemed is this three concepts found in this in, in redemption. I'm kind of reviewing a little bit because we go into this. We're going to see this brought out even more. The first concept of redemption is this concept of purchase. Jesus, by his blood, purchased every single one of you to be his very own. You, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you belong to him. You belong to him because Jesus used the most valuable heavenly currency, his blood, to purchase you. Secondly, you have not, you not only have been purchased and belong to him, because that is, that's the essence of this word, redeem. Your sins have been forgiven as a result. You cannot separate Jesus' purchasing you as his child from forgiveness. Because in order for you to come into his family, that sin, it has to go. It has to. And so Jesus' blood purchased you and it washed you clean. So how does that apply to Peter? Peter, your sin, the shame that you feel because of that sin, I washed that sin away. It is finished. The work of redemption finished, complete, forgiveness available, washing every sin away. Not just the sins that we had committed before we became a Christian. Every sin. Church, say that with me. Every sin, every sin in your life, Washed away. Why? Because you trusted and believed in Jesus Christ. So Peter had been purchased. He had been forgiven. But this third aspect of redemption is the result of all of this is that you receive a new life. You've been changed. You've been transformed. Jesus in John 3 verse 5 says that we are born again. Now, you remember the story of Nicodemus, he didn't quite understand. I got to enter my mother's womb a second time. I don't get this. No, obviously, that's not what he's talking about. And there's this spiritual transformation. Ephesians 2 says, I was dead in sin, but now I've been raised up with Christ. I have new life. And as you read through the Gospel of John, it's all about life. When we looked at that word zoe, that Greek word zoe, it means life. It's not the Greek word bios, which means like living life, like biology. No, zoe. It is this life that when it comes in you, it transforms you. It is the Spirit of God coming in you and making you a different person. So his zoe life, his life comes in us. 
And he begins this amazing lifelong transformation in which some of us can sometimes get pretty impatient, can't we? God, are you going to speed this process up? But here's the truth, church. Transformation takes time. You cannot hurry it up. I don't care how godly you are. You cannot hurry this process up. And so what we discovered in this concept of redemption is that it is now being applied to Peter. And the, the what we focused on last week was this, that when they're out in the boat and they caught nothing all night, what was the incredible, marvelous plan of a carpenter, former carpenter, now king of the universe, right? Standing on the shore told them to do, hey, Peter, you want to catch a lot of fish? Yeah, like we've been out here all night. Help me out. He says, all you got to do is just throw the net on the other side of the boat. Great, six feet. That'll mean a lot. Thanks for nothing. And you know, instead he does that. And what happens? The net is so full of fish, but it doesn't break. And they haul it in. And Peter, he, he, when he gets there first and when the boat comes in, he climbs aboard the boat and he's the one who grabs the, the net and he pulls it ashore. And John tells us there were 153, not 150, not 160, not 155, 153. That's 51 times three if I got my math right. Theologians, they love to try and, okay, what, what's the spiritual significance? You know what the spiritual significance of all of that is? Here it is. Peter counted them. That's it. <laughs> he was so amazed by what Jesus, just throw your net in on the other side. Yeah, right. Well, the net was so full of fish, he wanted to count them. This is a story he wants to tell his children and his grandchildren. By the way, Peter was married. He wants to tell his children, grandchildren, and man, I, you got to hear this one. 153 large fish. Peter fish, they were large fish, right? And, and so he's a fisherman, but now he's fishing for men. And so Jesus' point was this. Look, Peter, why are you so caught up in your shame? The cross and the resurrection has broken that off of you. And my heart for you has not changed even one little bit. And we know this. Because what happened there that day is a reflection of when Peter was first called. Luke 5. Except there, he didn't have to throw the net on the other side of the boat. He just had to launch out into deep water. He threw the net out. Been fishing all night, caught nothing. He was mending his nets, pulling the seaweed out. Jesus says, yeah, let's try it again. And he says, Jesus, we've been fishing all night, but because you say so, okay. The net began to tear. Peter says, away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Why? Because Peter's, he was a sinner and he was ashamed of his sin. Does he do that in John 21? When he catches this huge bunch of fish, 153 large fish, does he, does he say, oh, let's not go ashore. That's Jesus and I'm ashamed. He dives into the water and he swims ashore and he gets there ahead of them. And I also pointed out, oh, by the way, the net did not tear this time. Jesus, through, in, through this example, says, Peter, I have loved you. I pursued you. 
There's one gospel, and I think it's John. It says that when Peter, for the third time, denied him, it says that Jesus' eyes and Peter's eyes connected. And the shame. I think Jesus' eyes were looking at Peter, not in such disappointment, not in saying, oh, Peter, there you go. I knew you'd do it. Satan's desire to sift you is wheat. <sighs> so disappointed in you, Peter. I think he looked with love. Because Peter, because Jesus predicted this would happen. And he said, but when your heart changes, build up my church. And we're going to look now. At, that was kind of a long review. But I want us to look now at these next two things that Jesus does specifically for Peter to make sure that the shame doesn't come back. Let's look at this, starting with verse 15. John chapter 21, verse 15. When they had finished, they had eaten breakfast. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Jesus, the, the third, excuse me. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord. You know, I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time, he said to him, Simon, Son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved, who is the author of this gospel, by the way, we're going to have to look at that for a moment, was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper that John talks about earlier and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? Then Peter said to him, when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. I'm going to stop right there. And I want us to dig into this. Apparently, after breakfast, Jesus says to Peter, hey, let's go for a walk. And in their walk, they dialogue. Now, we know they're going for a walk because Peter has to turn around and see that John is doing what? following. If they were just sitting there, John's not going to be following them, so they're obviously going for a walk. You know, when my wife wants to have a wonderful conversation with you and you happen to be visiting, she says, hey, let's go for a walk. 
when I want to have a wonderful conversation of you with you, I say, hey, let's grab lunch together. I'm hungry. All right. And that's we just have different styles. And so uh, we just want to build a friendship here and we want to be, if there's an opportunity to minister, we want to be able to do that. And so my wife goes for a walk. I take you out to lunch and Jesus, I guess he favors my wife's uh, methodology a little bit better. But he said, he in essence says, Peter, let's, let's go for a walk. So in this walk, Jesus asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? more than these. Now he asks them this question, do you love me? Three times. Now, can you imagine why Jesus would ask Peter, do you love me? Three times. Now, I I think most commentaries, if you've ever come across this, and if you've got a study Bible, it probably tells you in the notes, it is because Peter denies Jesus three times. I want us to be able to see something beyond that today. And then there's a third, another point that I want us to see um, with regard to John. So here they are, they're going for a walk, and Jesus asked Peter, Peter, excuse me, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, first of all, it struck me, why does Jesus call him Simon, son of John? Now, your translation may, may say Simon Barjona. Barjona is not his last name. Bar means son of, and so it's Simon's son of John. I guess his dad's name was John. And, and so anyway, he, he, he asks him, do you love me more than these? Now, some have said, well, do you love, Jesus is saying, do you love me more than your fishing trade? Well, I'm not so sure he would be saying that. They're probably passing the boats with all the fish. And I doubt he's saying, hey, Peter, do you love me more than all these fish? I'm not sure that that's really what Jesus is getting at here. And if it was his fishing trade, it would have been singular. Do you love me more than this? So I don't think that's what he was getting at. Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter, in other words, these disciples here that are following me, do you love me more than they love me? I think we're going to see here that Jesus does not desire to compare in any way. We're going to see that in just a, a little bit. I think what Jesus is getting at is, Peter, do you love me more than you love all of your friends here? And Peter says, yeah. But why does he call him Simon Barjona? And so when, when you look at this and you look at the chapter, John uses the name Peter 10 times. Do you know where that name Peter comes from? He wasn't born with it. He was born with the name Simon, the name Jesus refers, you know, calls him in this passage. Uh, in Hebrew, it's Cephas. In the Greek, it's Simon. But he, Peter, excuse me, John, call, uses the name Peter about 10 times. Half the time, it's Simon Peter. The other half, it's just Peter. Now, Peter was given to Simon by Jesus himself, and guess which gospel? The gospel of John, chapter 1. And when he first meets him, he gives, Jesus gives him this name. It's like a nickname. The word Peter means rock. Peter, you're going to be a rock, dude. You know, Dwayne Johnson. Yeah, the rock, okay? 
I don't know who gave you know Dwayne Johnson that name. He's a, he's he's a little big, um, but his nickname is The Rock. Now I'm not so sure that Peter was given that because he was built like Dwayne Johnson, but I do think he was given that because his character was, or at least would be. And when Jesus is speaking to Peter, he doesn't use that name. As a matter of fact, there's this huge contrast. John purposely calls him Peter and only Peter. He never just says simply Simon. It's either Simon Peter or Peter. And then suddenly when Jesus addresses him, the one who gave him this name, it's not Peter, Rock. It's Simon, son of John. Now, here's what I think Jesus is doing here. Jesus is purposefully not calling him Peter because the purpose here is not for Jesus to give him a truth. Remember, I called you Peter. That infusion of truth and God's never-ending pursuing love of Peter has already taken place and was demonstrated to Peter. And it struck Peter so strongly, Peter being the impetuous, bold one, threw his outer garment up or tied it around his waist rather, jumped into the ocean or the sea and swam ashore. He was so excited because Jesus was saying, I've not kicked you to the curb. I've still called you. Now Jesus is getting at something very differently here. He is not looking for Simon to receive a truth from Jesus. He is wanting Simon to declare a truth. You know, when God asks a question, ever asks a question, he is not asking it because he doesn't know the answer. He is asking it because he wants you to tell him what he already knows. In the Garden of Eden, you remember that? Genesis chapter 3, and Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit, and they saw that they were naked, and they hear God in the garden. So what did they do? Did they run and greet him? No, they hide. And as God is walking through the garden, he says, Adam, where are you? Is he asking that question because they're playing, you know, hide and seek and God doesn't know where Adam is? And No, God knows exactly where Adam is. He's waiting for a confession from Adam. I heard you in the garden and I hid because I was ashamed of my nakedness. And so shame from his sin is very present. So you feel shameful. Tell me why you are ashamed. Um, the woman you gave me, yeah, she made me eat the fruit. I had nothing to do with this, okay? She forced me at like gunpoint. Or, no, it didn't happen quite that way. But God asks a question, already knowing the answer, but he is waiting for Simon to speak a truth. Jesus is asking Simon, son of John, Simon, I want to hear you tell me a truth. Do you love me? And Simon says, I love you. 
And I'm going to use an illustration here. So I'm going to have Peter and Diego, excuse me, <laughs> Stephen and Diego, if you guys could come up here. And we have a little competition going. Okay, not really. But let me see how. Ah, it's already cooling down. I, oh, well. So here's what I want you guys to do. There is actually an equal amount of water in both of these. I had to put this in a cup, in, in a beaker because I was afraid that if it boiled, it would break the glass. So there's equal amounts of water. This is cold water, very cold water. And this is very, well, it was supposed to be hot. It's very warm water now. Each of these guys, and stand up if you would, are in a competition. And we're, you're each going to get a tablespoon of sugar and be sure not to spill it, but put it in your glass, and I want you to dump it at the same time and start stirring. And when your sugar is dissolved in your water, I want you to raise your hand. All right? Is it, do I need to repeat the instruction? You, you guys got this. I know you do. Okay, are you ready? Go ahead and pick up your spoon. Competitors, don your spoons. Okay, <laughs> there we go. Okay. <laughs> Grab a teaspoon of sugar, not at the same time. I don't want you to war over it. Okay, here we go. A tablespoon of sugar, tablespoon. Come on, tablespoon, whole tablespoon. There we go. Okay, put them in your, put them in and start stirring. Okay, just start stirring. Let me know when your sugar has dissolved. Now, which of you, you're already done? Which of you guys, I can't ask the question now. Which of you think Diego's sugar is going to dissolve first? <laughs> Steven, is your sugar dissolved yet, bro? Are you still stirring? Yeah, I still see some crystals of sugar in there. Yours is all dissolved. Thank you, guys. Can we just give them a, a round of applause? You are amazing. Thank you. Stephen's stirring muscles are going to be sore tomorrow morning, right? Here's why I, I ask this. Sugar dissolves best in hot water. I'm going to coin a phrase right now. I'm not sure if anyone's used it before, but I'm going to, I'm going to call this soluble truth. Soluble truth. Don't ask me to spell that. Here's what I mean by this. Many times in our lives... We go through fiery trials. For some reason, it is in the midst of fiery trials when the heat is turned up that we are most receptive to truth. I don't know why that is. It, it, there's something about em, intense emotion that stirs something. We latch on to truth best. It many times, of course, causes us to cry out to God, what are you doing? Help me out here. And God has an opportunity to come through for us. But it is in the midst of when the fire is turned up that truth is best received. Jesus asks Peter, tell me again how many times? Three times. Three times, do you love me? And by the third time, the fire's been stoked, the heat's been turned up, and what happens to Peter? Peter gets his feel-feels hurt. And, and you'll be, Jesus, I mean, come on, you know all things. You may not have said it quite that way, but you know the answer. I've already told you twice. You know what's in my heart. Jesus, I love you. 
and, 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 I, and, and I'm filling in a little bit here, okay? Work with me. It's as if Jesus says, yes, yes. In the midst of me stirring this up and reminding you of what happened those several nights ago when you denied me three times, and in the midst of revisiting that pain, you have declared this soluble truth, I love you. And I've already told you this before, but I love the movie. Uh, okay, hang on a second. Uh, Facing the Giants. There we go. Brain cloud. Facing the Giants. And when the, the, the wife receives news, spoiler alert, it's the wrong test that she gets. Sorry, I probably just spoiled the movie for those of you who did. But she gets the wrong test and she's told, you're not pregnant. And she goes out to her vehicle, which, by the way, is a Ford Expedition, if you haven't. Anyway, and she goes out, and and she is so disappointed. And she says, but yet, Lord, I will still love you. At that moment, that truth is soluble in her heart. I will love my Jesus. Regardless of incredible disappointment, I love you, Jesus. And this is what God, Jesus, is wanting to hear from Peter. I love you. And to the point where Peter is hurt, it's like, don't you believe me? It's not that Jesus doesn't believe him. He's trying to stir up the heat and he's trying to stir up the soluble truth and say, let me just hear it one more time, Peter. Jesus. I love you. Now, very quickly, turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Some of you know the Romans road. Do you know what the Romans road is? The Romans road is taking someone through the letter of the book of Romans and sharing the gospel with them. I use many, I don't use the Romans road necessarily when I evangelize, but I do use several verses. And this one right here is commonly used when we're evangelizing and sharing the gospel with someone who is lost in their sin. Listen to what Paul says, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What to ingredients, if you will, is Paul asking of them belief in the heart, confession with the mouth. Now, many times that confession would take place at water baptism, but water baptism does not save us. You know that, but it is the confession of our mouth. We, when those who call upon the name of the Lord shall, what church, be saved. That's right. And so when we call upon the name of the Lord, we are saved and we declare Jesus is Lord. We confess it with our mouth. And he goes on to say in the very next verse, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. I don't encourage you. Um, Ricky, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot here, but Ricky recently gave his heart to Christ. And yeah. 
And so he and Zach are working out a time to, for him to get water baptized. His wife's, you know, going to be away for a little bit when she comes back. She wants to be there. And so anyway, this is going to be a celebration for you, brother. Okay. And I call you brother because you're part of my family now. All right. And you're part of Jesus's family. And so I'm going to encourage you, confess with your mouth what Jesus has done for you. Now, that's not going to save you, but here's, here's something that's interesting. When we confess with our mouth, it's as if it galvanizes what's in our heart. Did you know that? When you believe in Jesus Christ and you tell somebody, it's like, yeah, I gave my heart to Jesus. And it's like solidified, I am following Jesus. And that's just, that's just the power of confession. Now I realize there's a teaching out there that actually says that the power of confession has its own power and it's like mystical, magical power that can move mountains. And can I just say that if you confess anything, it has absolutely zero power in and of itself. It has influence is what I'm saying. It has influence to galvanize what is in our hearts. Words never have power in and of, our, uh, in and of themselves. When Peter says to Tabitha, rise up, what happens? She rises from the dead. Did his words have power? No. Guess who did have power though, church? Tell me. Jesus did. Jesus was the one who raised her from the dead. Yeah. So our, our words confessing, they just simply galvanize the truth that's in our heart. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. This is what Jesus is looking for. Peter, I like what I'm hearing. Just tell me one more time, do you love me? Oh, yes. Jesus, you know all things. I love you. And I'm going to tell you that if you want to see that shame, not just broken off, but never come back, I think Jesus wants you to regularly confess. And that actually is what we do in worship. We are confessing with our mouth. I love Jesus in the midst of this sin that I committed last week. Horrible. I feel so guilty. I love Jesus. I am still accepted in the beloved. I am still redeemed. I've been purchased. I have been forgiven and I've received this new transformative life. I am confessing Jesus in response. I love you. Sealing the deal, if you will. I am, I'm galvanizing this truth in my heart. I am following you. I love you, Jesus. That is what we do in worship. If you're going through a hard time, one of the best things you can do is worship because worship declares truth and confesses what's in our heart. That's what Jesus is looking for. I don't want you to ever revisit that shame again. I don't want it to ever haunt you. And so here's what I need to do. The next thing, Peter, I needed to just hear from you this soluble truth. Jesus, I love you. It's almost as if Peter was, and I'm reading between the lines, I understand. Jesus, I love you to the ends of the earth and back, even if I have to die. Can you just hear Peter saying that? Now, the reason why you can is because he already did say that before he denied Jesus. I'm willing to die for you. And Jesus looked at him, "Mm, really? Okay, well, newsflash, tonight, (laughs) 
we're going to just see how deep that love is. Sorry, but when the, co- when the cock crows, you will have already denied me three times. That is not what Peter wanted to hear. The Peter already come, I'll die for you, Jesus. Now, I'm reading between the lines because Peter doesn't say that. He's probably afraid to, honestly. But he is, he is declaring, Jesus, I love you, which is what he was trying to say in that upper room when he said, I'll be willing to die for you. No, it's Jesus who is saying it now. You know what, Peter? I hear you saying you love me to the ends of the earth and back. But you know what? There's going to come a time in your life in which when you confessed earlier, just a few nights ago, Jesus, I'll stand with you. Though everyone scatters, I'm not going to scatter. I will follow you because I love you and I will die for you. And it's as if Jesus is saying, okay, you know that confession that you made? Right now, it's true. You will die for me. And he says, in Peter's death, it would truly bring glory to God. But here's what hap- here's what's happening. John, excuse me, Peter hears this. Maybe there's a little bit of confusion. Okay, I'm going to dress you and lead you by the hand. And it's possible that he pieced this together a little bit later. Maybe he's getting a, a little bit of an understanding. So Jesus, are you saying I'm going to like die for you? Is that what you're getting at? But he turns around and who's following them? But John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, <laughs> and Peter, out of the blue, says, well, what about him? He might as well have said squirrel, right? Yeah. What do you mean, what about him? I had to ask myself, as I'm going through this, why does he ask, what about John? And I believe John sets us up for something here. I really want to say, I've got 15 minutes. I need to be quick on this. Church, listen to this so clearly, please. John sets us up to understand this by calling himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, can I ask you, is it not true that when you deal with shame and you're trying to distance yourself from that shame, that shame can bring this sense of unworthiness, this sense of, God, do you even love me or care about me? Are you ever going to even use me anymore? And again, shame distorts the picture of for us of who we are in Christ. That's what shame does. And so, excuse me, and so Peter, Peter is wondering, all right, so here's the shameful thing I did. I hear that I am forgiven, I'm redeemed, but now you're telling me I'm, sounds like you're telling me I'm going to die. Well, here's your BFF, the Apostle John was Jesus' closest friend. You know, pastors can have closest friends too. Jesus had a closest friend. It's not that John was the only disciple, yeah, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he hated the rest of them. No, that's not what he's trying to get at here. He's just simply saying, you know, John was his closest friend. Jesus had an earthly closest friend. John, Jesus' best friend, 
well, he never went through something as shameful as me. Hmm. Will he end up dying? And what Peter is doing is he's saying, okay, I did some, some, something shameful, so maybe my ministry will not be as worthy as John's. Because John, ah, oh, Jesus loves John. And, and Jesus is saying, Peter, who cares if he lives until I come back? Which, by the way, has been 2,000 years. Who cares? It's none of your business. Church, when you start comparing yourself out of your own, I'm going to step on your toes, out of your own insecurities, and I can do that because I've had to wrestle with this, when we start comparing ourselves to others, well, you know what? Maybe God loves me, but just not as much as this other person. I mean, he really loves him. I mean, look at how successful he is. Look at his family. Look at his 3.2 kids. Look at his two, yeah, Look at all of his cars. They're nice cars. You know, mine are Ford. Sorry if you're a Ford lover. You know, found on road dead or fix or report daily, whatever. Um, I just, sorry, Zach, forgive me because he drives a Ford Ranger. Great truck, brother. Great truck. But you know what? He, he's, he's just wondering, do I get the best from you? Do I still, am I still, I mean, I'm going to die. I mean, what about him? Is he going to end up living forever? And Jesus has to say, you know what? Get your eyes off this comparison. And what does he tell Peter? Look in your Bibles. What does he tell him to do? Follow me. Get your eyes off of John. Stop comparing yourself with John and put your eyes on me. I am your only concern now to the day you die. Care about, well, I don't want to say care about nothing. Focus on nothing else. Let me be your consuming passion. Follow me, Peter. Can I give you an illustration of someone who didn't, who did compare? Saul. Saul receives this news because he he's been very unfaithful and he doesn't repent. If you're taking notes, then underline those. Yeah, two words. Doesn't repent and put an exclamation mark. Actually underline each of those two words three times. I want him to jump out at you because Saul doesn't repent and he's still dealing with his shame of being discarded, set aside as for being a king and another one is going to come and take your place. So he sees how successful David is. Do you remember the ladies when they, when David and Saul come back from their campaign? They sing a song. A song yet. Saul has slain his thousands and David his what? Tens of thousands. And Saul says, Thanks a lot. I'm your king and you're comparing me to David and you're saying he's slain 10,000 and I've just, I've slain 10 times less than that. He's probably, I should have all of these ladies executed. That's what I should probably do today. And, and he's jealous. And in the very next paragraph, this is right after David kills Goliath. The very next paragraph, he tries to kill David. What more could he want but my kingdom? The jealousy there. 
And the jealousy is there because it's, it's part of this insecurity package that Saul has inherited because he has not dealt with his shame. When you don't deal with your shame, you're going to be filled with insecurity. You will compare yourself with others. Look how successful they are. God must love them more. I want to tell you about a guy. His name is Dave. Dave and I, uh, we graduated from Regent University in our master, with our Masters of Divinity the same year. We are both, uh, we have membership in HNI, which is Harvest Network International. That's where I have my ordination through. And same with Dave. Dave and I, back in the 90s, when we were investigating HNI, we bunked together. He warns me. Mike, I have a little problem. When I sleep at night, I sometimes talk in my sleep, and I sometimes can, I can actually sleepwalk. As a matter of fact, there was one time in which I was in a hotel, and I sleptwalk, and I was in my, you know, a T-shirt and my boxers, and I walked down into the lobby, and I came back, and I did not remember that happening at all. So in the middle of the night, Dave wakes up, and I'm so grateful he did not sleepwalk in his boxers. But all he did, and this was interesting, is he gets up on his elbow, rolls over, and he looks at me, and he says, Stop it! (laughs) Stop it! In the name of Jesus, stop it! I'm a light sleeper, so I wake up. And I look at him, Dave, and I'm remembering, he can even sleepwalk. I better do something right now. Dave, I got everything under control. You can go back to sleep now. And he's like this. He rolls over, and he goes back to sleep. And praise God, he does not sleepwalk. But this guy, Dave, uh, and I, we become friends. And I am that type of person that loves to remind people of their past. No, I, okay. Not their past sins, but funny things from the past. So I've reminded him numbers of times about it. But Dave and I graduated, and he went his way, I went my way. And about 10 years later, and here's what I'm getting at, um, Regent University puts out a magazine, and they highlight somebody in that magazine. And guess who they highlighted? Thank you. Dave had built a ministry of teaching pastors in third world countries leadership principles. He got a number of guys around him. He's, he's just this short, stocky. He's not fat. He's like, he's, uh, and he, he's a, an aggressive guy. And I just thought, that's great, Dave. Look, look, look what he's done. And they're talking about he's, he's coupled with these other ministries to be able to put um, a, a basically a seminary course. The name of that seminary course was put together by a graduate from our school called Motmot. Don't ask me to get into that. Uh, interesting name. But it's six books. It's, a, it's seminary. And the goal was for it to be cross-cultural. A pastor then receives this at the training And he can now train other leaders in his church to become pastors. And these are, many of them, like in Bangladesh, unreached 
people groups. What an amazing door of opportunity that God has opened for my friend Dave. When I read this, here's what I did. Wow. Lord, I am like really struggling as a pastor. And you just blessed Dave like incredibly. What about me? And the insecurities that I had been dealing with that I really thought God had set me free from came flooding to the surface. Wow, God, what about me? And as I wrestled, I knew that my feelings were wrong, but it was like they were emotions on fire. And God had to, God and I had a little talk right there. And he began to speak to my heart. And of course, he asked me a question that he knew the answer to that I needed to confess. Mike, what is wrong in your heart right now? And I had to search and I said, God, I don't know why I feel this way. But I feel like you're blessing Dave because he's, well, you love him more. And it's as if right there, God had to say, Mike, can you allow me to do something in your life right now? Because I need to reach into your heart and I need to pull out from your heart this insecurity that's causing you to compare yourself with this man of God. And it's just bringing mayhem into your walk with me right now. And I just began to confess, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. And just the, any sense of unworthiness, God, it's like mud. Just wash it away. I don't want to have anything to do with that. And then the Lord began to lead me to if I could have called Dave, I just didn't have his number. I would have called him and said, Dave, I am so proud of you. Can I just take a few minutes right now? And if it's not for your benefit, it's for mine. But I just, I just need to commend you. You've done an amazing job. And there is just something when you speak like that and you praise another person for their accomplishment and how God has used them, it begins to break that insecurity in your own life and this desire to compare, and it frees you. And Jesus is saying, Peter, take your eyes off of John. Mike, take your eyes off of Dave. Well, I, I thanked the Lord immediately for him. But then I did something else. And it's what Jesus asked Peter to do. Peter, Jesus said, Peter, follow me. Pursue me. Eyes only on me. Church, that was one of the hardest things that I've had to do. I was caught in the devil's trap. And I wrestled with it. I wish that were the only time in which that ha has happened. It is not. But God has regularly had to reach into my life and say, Mike, what is the truth? Tell me the truth. Let, 
tell me the truth. You know what, Jesus? The truth is I love you and you have loved me. And that's what God did. Jesus just brought Peter through. And now, Jesus, I'm going to get my eyes off of this, whatever this, you know, this person and their accomplishments, and I'm going to pursue you. Church, take your eyes off of that person that you see so blessed with that guy's that beautiful wife and you're single and that they have 3.2 children and they've got this car and it's amazing and it's a wonderful house and yeah, I'm still single and let me just tell you my sob story. Get your eyes off of all of that. Get your eyes off of man and focus them on Jesus again. Because if you don't do that, you will potentially stumble into the same problem that King Saul did because he did not deal with this issue and he focused on David so much he tried to kill him umpteen dozen, that's what my mom would say, umpteen dozen times, that's a Georgian expression, I guess. And, And his life was trashed because of that and he did not deal with it. Jesus is saying, Peter, come on, not just confess you love me, now follow me. I want to be everything in your life. Can I ask you this? Number one, I'm going to just say this. God's love is infinite. God's love is infinite. And if you think God can love your friend more, can I ask you this? What is infinity plus one? Help me out. It is still infinity. There is no such thing as infinity plus one. It is the same thing. It is still infinity. If Jesus loves you with infinity, that means he loves you without ceasing. He loves you to no end. He loves you continuously. He doesn't just love you a lot. There is not a limit to his love for you. And if his love for you is infinite and you're comparing yourself to someone else, maybe he loves you more. What's with infinity plus more? It's still infinity. There's no such thing as infinity plus one or plus two or plus 10. It is still infinity. Do you, do you get my point here? Jesus cannot love someone more than you. He can't do it because it's infinite. Now, can I ask you this, though? If God loves everyone on planet Earth, God so loved the world, what is infinity divided by 7 billion? It's still what, church? Tell me. Yes, it's still infinity. I don't care how many people God loves. He loves you infinitely. And he cannot love you any less. His love is higher than the heavens. Have you ever measured that? The furthest star away? Yeah, they're still trying to figure that one out. Follow Jesus. Can you receive that this morning? follow Jesus? Are you caught up in this comparison? This is what we do. Well, you know, look how successful they are. Well, God must love them more. No, that's wrong thinking. God has this amazing plan for you. He had an amazing plan for Peter. Unfortunately, it included being crucified upside down. But guess what? It glorified God. It is said that John lived 25 more years than Peter. And when he died an old man, history, you know, tradition says that uh, the governor or king tried to boil the apostle John in a vat of oil and he couldn't, he wouldn't die. 
And so he exiled him to Patmos. Now, I don't know if that story is completely true or not, but it is well recorded. It's not in the Bible. It's in other books. But does that mean that God just loved John more? It's interesting. If we're going to think that way, then I guess God didn't love his brother James at all because James was the first apostle to die and his brother John was the last. And John outlived James by almost 60 years. Peter was thrown in prison in that very same chapter that James is told, we're told that James dies and he's rescued. Does that mean that God loved Peter because he rescued him from prison more than James because James was martyred? Beheaded, actually. No, because James died to glorify God. And and if you're going to follow Jesus, I'm going to tell you this, that's your only goal in life. I want to glorify you, God. I don't. I don't want to say I don't care because I, I think I do because I'm emotion an emotional person. But you know what? The bottom line, whatever you have in store for me, whatever you have in store for me, I will follow you even to the ends of the earth and back. And I've got to die because Jesus said, deny self, take up your cross and follow me. I want to close in prayer. God has deposited some soluble truth in your hearts this morning. I want to give just a moment for us to respond. His love for you is unfailing, unending, and infinite. That will never change. This morning, can you just tell him again, resolutely, Jesus, I love you. And Jesus, I will follow you always, even if it means my death, even if it means in the eyes of the world, failure. Because in the eyes of God, it will not. I am here to glorify you. Jesus, I thank you that you have called us and you have not turned your back on us. Jesus, thank you that you have deposited truth in us, that you have redeemed us and we're your very own. Thank you that you went to the cross. Thank you that you rescued me from my sins. Thank you that you've imparted new life to me. Right now, though, Jesus, I'm struggling. I'm just going to encourage you, church, open your heart up to him. If you want to kneel, if you want to come to the altar, whatever you want to do, Jesus, need you to remove these insecurities, this feeling of unworthiness that hangs over me like a shadow. Maybe some of the shame the devil just keeps coming, bringing it back to me and reminding me, rescue me from this. Jesus, I love you. And I will follow you to the ends of the earth and back. Even if I must die, but I will be resolute in this. My life's ambition is to glorify you. Whatever happens in my life, it is all about you. Help us, God. Rescue us from comparisons and our insecurities. 
would speak life and truth to us again. Thank you, Jesus.